Hello everyone and welcome to the CONP podcast. My name is Mathieu Dupuis and in this episode Nicolas Tikov and I interviewed Benjamin Stacher. Benjamin was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease at the early age of 29 years old and has since been traveling the world to meet researchers and physicians to learn more about his condition. In the beginning of the interview, Benjamin wanted to know more about the CONP, so Nicola gave him a brief summary of the project and the podcast. Who's the audience? Who are we talking to? Yeah, so maybe we can tell you a bit about the Canadian Open Neuroscience Platform. Are you aware of the CONP? Have you? I, I know of it just tangentially, but right. not. Uh, so basically, it's a pan-Canadian $11 million grant. Okay. Um, and uh, the idea is to innovate in terms of infrastructure for making science open, Okay. but also innovate in terms of training uh, the next generation of open neuroscientists that will incorporate some of these open science practices, and then create venues for spreading the word about open neuroscience. Okay. Uh, we have a podcast uh, that uh, usually so far has been just interviewing the people that are part of the CONP. You're the first time that we're actually kind of reaching out beyond, and in okay. particular, reaching out to patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we're also developing a new publishing platform mm-hmm. that will make it easier for people to share data, to share code, and to make the whole process a little bit more transparent mm-hmm. in terms of the reviews, in terms of the way that we communicate our findings to the public. Okay. But generally, it sounds like other researchers, other people involved in funding. Primarily, it's researchers. Primarily, okay. you know, so far, we've never, you know, had a podcast that has kind of gone viral to yeah. a broader audience. No. I think it's more to rally researchers around a common idea. After this overview, we started the interview talking about Benjamin's personal experience living with Parkinson's disease. Let's find out what he had to say. Thanks for agreeing to meet us today, Benjamin. Could you tell me a bit about how it was uh, for you to be diagnosed at such a young age? Sure, and thank you for having me here, Matthew. Um, So it came as a bit of a shock. I mean, my first symptoms started to appear about three years prior to that, when I was about 26 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it took a little while for them to develop to the point where I needed to go see a specialist. Uh, This was about six years ago now. And there's an adjustment period that takes place. There's definitely a need. I mean, in the end, it's all about adapting to new circumstances, adapting to new realities in some ways as well. I mean, you, it takes time to come to the realization that the life that you are expecting to lead is not going to be exactly the one that you that you were going to get. Mm-hmm. But at some point, I, I, just, I don't know, so I just came to the realization that uh, it's kind of an old, tired cliche, but you don't choose the cards you're dealt. You only choose how to play them. That enabled that that mentality, I guess, enabled me to go out and seek. Okay, I have this condition. What should I do about it? What can I do about it? What what needs to be done to push things forward? Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the time of uh, that I was diagnosed, I was living and working in China, um, and I realized soon afterwards that China was not going to be the best place for me long term to to properly take care of myself. So I came back to Toronto, where I grew up uh, at about 32 years old age. Uh, this was about just over three years ago now. And as you said, I've since been traveling the world, trying to meet as many researchers as I can, trying to see what needs to be done to push things forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the core things that I've found that I think, one of the core buttons that I found that I could push to push things forward is this concept of open science. And that's what's kind of led me to come back to the MNI so often. Uh, it's because it very much is the the bedrock of a lot of the best ideas coming in and around open science research. Very interesting. And um, 
Are you uh, very much in touch with other Parkinson's disease patients? Yes, I've developed a pretty broad network of patients, uh, researchers, activists, clinicians, uh, caregivers as well. I've gotten to know people all around the world, and it's one of the weird gifts that this kind of disease has given me, is got my foot in the, into the door in places I would never have dreamed of going to. I've seen some of the top researchers in the world. I've gotten to know some of the leading activists in the world, um, and it's really inspired me in many ways to to realize that there is something I can do. There is something that can be done uh, to accel accelerate progress and to push things forward. Mm -hmm. Cool. So you travel the world a lot to meet with many researchers, and um, I assume this brought you like very valuable information and allowed you to, to have like the, the big picture of what's currently being done in science. Mm -hmm. um, did you... Prior to that, did you have a background in science or...? No, the last biology class I took was probably in grade 10. Mm -hmm. I was a history and philosophy major at school um, or at university. Um, but I found... So there's one kind of... I, I guess I'm, I've always been very good with languages. Yeah. And I found that science is like almost any other domain of knowledge. It's just a language at the end of the day. I mean, some of the skills needed are, are a little bit different. But to be able to speak to scientists and be able to enter into these worlds, you really just have to be able to speak the language, which means just knowing all the vocabulary, knowing the core concepts and knowing how to apply them. Mm -hmm. So are you the, the kind of patient that's very interested in uh, learning more about his condition and these type of things? Yes, you... I'm interested in learning as much as I can about my condition, but I guess I'm more interested in learning about what I can actually do about things. Okay. There's a lot of information out there, and this kind of speaks to the point that was raised before. There's a lot of information out there that just becomes noise, and it's very hard to filter all that information as well. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's overwhelming for a lot of people. Um, I mean, neuroscience is complicated. The brain is very complicated, <laughs> to, to say the least. With enough experience and with enough kind of trial and error, you start to figure out what works for you and what doesn't work for you. Mm -hmm. And you, you do learn about more your own condition, but also you learn about critically what needs to be done to push things forward and accelerate progress. Yeah. And um, do you think that patients in general know about their condition enough? Um, I would say no, definitely not. But I would also say that clinicians and researchers don't know enough about the condition as well. Nobody knows enough about these conditions. We don't have enough information to make good decisions yet at this point. Uh, and this is another key area where open science can really play a role in that So much of research, so much research gets embargoed or gets shut behind closed doors or gets put behind a paywall. Mm -hmm. uh, the more good information that's out there and accessible to everybody, the better off we'll all be. But we do need better ways of filtering that information as well, so that we know where how to get the good information. Yeah. All right. Um, so there, there are definitely problems with communication um, among researchers and patients. Um, if you could tell one. Thing to every Parkinson's disease researchers, what would it be? Um, I would say that if you are truly working in the best interest of patients and in the best interest of society, you should adopt at least some core principles associated with open science. If the goal of any research project that you're doing or any clinical study that you're a part of, if the end goal in your mind is a paper that's put out at the end of the day, mm -hmm. then frankly, you're doing things for the wrong reasons. It has to be about what eventually gets translated into the clinic and into the person. And I know that's hard to predict, and some and science moves in unpredictable ways. And sometimes mm -hmm. just putting out an idea into the world is enough. But 
without that connection to the clinic and without that connection to society and to patients, you, you'll, you'll almost be playing at trying to help people. You won't actually be helping people. All right. And then the same question, but with patients. If you could tell just one thing to every patient newly diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, what would it be? The disease sucks and you'll go through some hard times and there will be definitely things that you'll struggle with along the way. But there's, it's, it's also an opportunity to take part in a very vibrant, very active community and to really push things forward as well. And I think Parkinson's patients have a unique role to play in medical science as well because Parkinson's it, it's a slowly progressing disorder. Mm -hmm. I mean, it takes years and years and years for the symptoms to develop uh, and to, for, to progress to the point where they're actually debilitating. Although that's not the case for everybody. I mean, it's a heterogeneous disease mm -hmm. that affects everyone differently. But it does, for the most part, give patients enough time to, one, come to an understanding of what this disease really is, or at least as best as we know about it, and two, start to really do something about it. And it's something that, uh, frankly, a lot of other disease areas don't have the benefit of, either because it takes them too quickly, or mm -hmm. it, 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 I, I mean, it's also generally people that are not just able to cope with some of the things that are de they're dealing with. Yeah, I would say Parkinson's patients in particular have a unique role to play in that aspect. After asking Benjamin about his personal experience, Nicolas started a discussion on the influence of open science and its impact on treatment discovery. This section of the podcast is more focused on scientific publishing and healthcare. There's this there's this huge bottleneck in research. I mean, the amount of preclinical funding, the amount of preclinical research that gets done, the amount of uh, papers that get published vastly exceeds the amount that actually gets translated. And there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot of reasons for why those bottlenecks exist. But whatever we can do to open that up a little bit, even if it's just a crack, uh, will definitely help down the line spur innovation and spur more therapies and development. Um, and a lot of it comes down, a lot of the reasons for why it's so congested and why there's just not a lot of flexibility in the system to allow things to go forward is because of things like proprietary, uh, I mean, IP in general, um, and this incessant demand to be, to hold on to information so you can get it into, into the right journal. I mean, those two things alone, if we could free up those spaces would I, I don't have the numbers, but I'm sure I've no doubt in my mind that if we were to revolutionize how we do those two things, it would open the floodgates to a, a wide variety of therapies and research. Yeah. And I think floodgates being a keyword here, <laughs> is there such a thing as too much information? Yeah, there could be. But I mean, from my perspective and from my endpoint, there's not enough going on. There's not enough in development. There's a great quote that I got from an interview I did with a professor named Bastian Bloom in the Netherlands. Uh, I'm trying to remember it exactly, but basically said he sees a lot of basic scientists and even some clinical scientists as almost like uh, bumblebees in some sense. They publish their paper and then they move on to the next flower without actually taking the time <laughs> to germinate and pollinate what they've actually been working on in the past. Um, And a lot of that just become just is a result of the way the system is work system works, where the, there's just this incessant need to continue to produce new data, to continue to produce new information, because that's just the way things are done, the way things have always been done. Um, and it's something that I've been glad to see here in Canada, 
that I think is a little bit different. There's less of a need to adhere to the status quo. And there's more of a willingness to do things not just because that's the way we've done things in the past, but actually do things because this is the right way to go forward. Uh, so Alan Evans, who's the PI of the CONP, uh, kicked off the platform by saying Canada is uh, small enough to be manageable and large enough to make an impact. And I really do think we're operating in this sweet spot where uh, we can do things in slightly different ways. We can get an entire country behind an initiative, which is what the CONP is. Being a Canadian or part Canadian yourself, yeah. um, what is your experience with Canada uh, and the research that's done here compared to other countries? So I've found that for whatever reason, I haven't quite put my finger on why this is. But I've gotten the sense that Canadian researchers and Canadian institutions are more willing to explore new ideas and more willing to experiment with new models of how to do research. I think part of it is due to the national identity in some sense of being Canadian. I think we have a mentality of just almost a necessity to be open to new ideas. Um, because of our limited, while we have limited resources, we do pool some of the best minds in the world into this into this country, the ones that are willing to endure the winters anyway. <laughs> But, um, yeah, yeah the, we're, the, the, we're resilient. <laughs> yeah, there's a resilience that grows out of that as well. Uh, but there is just this, this profound uh, embrace of new ideas that I think is unlike anywhere else in the world, really. And I've had the chance to go and explore research centers all over the world, and I've really come away with the sense that there's just... I don't know, less conservatism in some sense, uh, more willingness to, like I said, explore new ideas and traverse and new I think, grounds. I think that does go hand in hand with this concept of frugality, you know, like a small country or, you know, small by population, definitely not by size, uh, limited resources, even the way that our science is funded, when you look comparatively between the sizes of the grants in Canada and the States, you'll see that our grants are smaller mm -hmm. uh, and we need to be very efficient with the way we use them. Yeah. So collaboration is kind of uh, encouraged. Uh, and also given the fact of our geographic neighbor to the South, I think we have this <laughs> mentality that we're kind of almost a little ant on top of an elephant in some sense. Uh, and yet, and so we, ha we have no choice but to find new and innovative ways to get creative about how to do things. So here you are in Montreal for the uh, Open Science in Action inaugural symposium. Uh, what was your primary motivation for coming to this event? Um, I guess just to generally promote open science initiatives here in Canada. Uh, I think open science is a necessity for drug development and drug discovery going forward. Um, and anything that I can do to help push that, push those messages along, I'm more than willing to do. How much experience do you have with the open science movement? So not as much as I'd like. It's something that I first, I think, became aware of about a year or two ago. Um, I started to learn a little bit more about some of the bottlenecks that were kind of embedded in the system. Uh, it's just something that as soon as I heard the idea, I naturally gravitated toward. I mean, just something that makes so much sense almost intuitively that we would try to make research as open and as accessible to as many people as possible. And, and open science is many things to many people. It's kind of like a Rorschach test, you know, yeah. like everybody sees something different about open science. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's open data, there's open code, open review, um, uh, lack of IP, uh, which aspect, reproducibility in science, which aspect of open science do you identify with the most or you think is the most pertinent for your activities? Uh, I guess it is the open access to information more than anything else. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've 
followed up on a study or I've heard, I mean as a patient one of the biggest struggles that we often go through is not a week goes by that I don't have some family member or some friend telling me about some new research that they discovered in some part of the world so I have to go and dig into it myself and I often find that there's paywalls all over the place uh, so I can't actually get access to the information that I need to to make an adequate assessment of the research so open science obviously opens that door I mean as soon as a publication becomes open to the public anyone can read it and it and as the more I dug into it the more I realized that science in general the way it works is very much like the, the monastery systems back in the Middle Ages in Europe where only a, a select group of individuals had access to the libraries even or could read for that matter uh, we've almost reinvented that monastic way of thinking about things uh, because of this paywall system that we've developed here in the yeah. way we do science. On top of non-transparent peer review, which makes the language very obtuse and makes us use a lot of jargon, mm -hmm. uh, on top of different conflicts of interest that come from the lack of transparency. So I agree that um, we have really closed up our science to outsiders. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like this initiation that happens. And once you speak the language, then, you know, you can proceed to uh, conduct your research. Exactly. And there is some good to that. I mean, there is some necessity. You don't want everybody to gain instant credibility and gain instant awareness of everything. There has to be some filter system that goes through, through it as well. But there must be a better way of doing things than the way we are doing things now. And open science seems to be an avenue that might get us there. So you've started a blog. Mm -hmm. um, it's called Tomorrow Edition. Mm -hmm. uh, given that we want to open up the floodgates, would you consider yourself to be somewhat of a gatekeeper for good information? Um, no. <laughs> uh, I try, I mean, if, just, in my, just because in my mind, a gatekeeper is somebody who literally decides who gets access to the information. Fair enough. Um, so, I, I started that blog for the very for the sole reason that I that I was struggling to find good information out there, and I wanted to make as much good information uh, as accessible to as many people as possible. So I started interviewing people. I started writing up uh, all the things that I was discovering, and yeah, I just try to make it open and as accessible to as many people as I possibly could. What's your uh, readership? Is it primarily patients? Um, it's hard to say. I, I don't check the stats that often but yeah I mean most of the feedback that I get is from patients although most of the lasting impressions that I've gotten although it's funny I guess one of the things that it's enabled me to do is it's gotten my foot into the door in almost any research institution that I want now so I do get I do see that there's a lot of scientists and a lot of researchers that take some of the things that I write up there seriously anyways um, so yeah I was, I was a little surprised that, to be honest at how willing a lot of them were to be interviewed by just some random guy who started a website. Uh, honestly, um, that's my experience also with running a lot of these science communication activities. Scientists do not mind uh, stepping out of the ivory tower, mm -hmm. but there's very few venues that will ensure that the things they say are properly vetted and peer-reviewed. Uh, I think scientists in general are skeptical of the way that uh, science journalism works. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, you get like a soundbite or something that's completely out of context. And I think there is a power in this kind of more grassroots approach where you have scientists interviewing other scientists, patients talking to scientists, mm -hmm. uh, kind of removing the middleman and trying to make that uh, uh, channel a little bit more immediate. Yeah, and I found that there's a great frustration in the science community about dealing with 
the way things are, the, the, public, the various publication channels that they have access to at the moment. I mean, I, I've talked for days on end with a number of researchers about all the struggles that they've gone through just trying to get published in yep. one of the high-impact journals and the effect that has on their careers and their livelihoods, to be honest, uh, and their mental health in many aspects as well. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think that they, a lot of them are more than happy to gravitate towards anything that might give them a little bit more flexibility and a little bit more uh, reach as well. So that's the channel of communication, uh, both in terms of publishing a paper, but then also making the findings uh, known. But then there are other aspects of uh, research that uh, slow down progress, uh, in particular, slow down drug development. In your opinion, uh, why does drug development take so long? Um, well, one, it's, it's a difficult process. I mean, it's very hard to make a drug. It's, very, it's a laborious process that requires a lot of diligent work and a lot of steady hands uh, guiding the ship. But there are also some key bottlenecks that make it... The way we've systematized the process of drug development um, doesn't enable us to, as rapidly as we possibly could, um, develop, this, uh, develop a new drug. So I often think if we were to restart, reboot the system, how would we do it? How would we start it up again to enable us to get drugs out into the public as quick, to enable new therapies that are properly tested and properly vetted out into the public as quickly as possible? And I don't have all the answers, but I'm confident that the way we do things now is not what we would choose. Um, and I'm pretty sure as well that a lot of the mandates and a lot of the principles behind open science is something we would naturally gravitate towards. Actually, there's a researcher here in... Uh, at McGill that illustrated this to me very well. Her name is Heidi McBride. Yes. In, the, in an interview I did with her, she, she very clearly elucidated just how, how narrow-minded in some sense that a lot of researchers are. I mean, they're forced in many ways to pick a very, very specific domain of knowledge and push that domain of knowledge as far as they can. But what that creates is, is a funnel uh, in which they don't have access in many respects to knowledge outside of their particular domain. So the more we can do to open up those channels, the better off I think we'll ultimately be at the end of the day. Uh, one problem I see is just the incentive structure. Mm -hmm. It's true, a lot of us are niche, a lot of us are over-specialized and not uh, collaborating enough. Uh, but it has to do with what uh, scientists get credit for. Unfortunately, the, the publication remains our primary currency. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you have the grant, that's kind of the hard cash, but then you have the papers, which are kind of the monopoly money that we uh, throw around to prove that uh, we uh, are respected scientists. Yeah. When we try to develop open source tools, software, make data available, unfortunately, promotion committees don't credit that as much. Um, in your experience, uh, what kinds of incentives would... Uh, make us more likely to uh, be more transparent and share more. Well, there's another researcher at the EPFL, his name is Halal Lachelle, who I think put it very well. And that is, if a lot of scientists, especially the ones working on disease areas, but even the ones that are just working on general biology and understanding our, what a human is, um, I think if they were forced to sit down in front of taxpayers and patients and explain why they do the things that they do, they would be forced in many ways to come up with different answers. Often the reason is, I need to get my name in this journal. I mean, that's the primary reason that's driving so much research forward. Ima imagine going to, up to a patient and explaining that I have this data, it might help you, but I can't get it out into the public for three years because I, I need to make sure that I have everything that I need to get it into this paper. 
I mean, so I guess uh, what you're implying is we should turn the tables and you should uh, interview me <laughs> so that I can uh, convince uh, patients that the work we do is uh, relevant. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, that's, that's an interesting concept. I think it's definitely a direction in which we could take this podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really thank you for taking the time. It's been uh, really valuable talking to you. And uh, who knows, maybe on another occasion we can uh, turn the tables and uh, have a patient interview uh, researcher. I'm more than happy to, anytime you want. Thank you.